Hi, everyone. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and welcome to episode 11. So episode 11 features my friend Erica. Erica is a professional trumpet player. In this episode, we talk about all sorts of different topics. She also delves into her Mexican heritage and how that has played into her career. And so I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. Uh, We cite a lot of resources for those of you who are looking for some outlet to further diversify your repertoire or just even just get some more knowledge out there, including the Sphinx organization, which I will be tagging in the post and in the episode for their website if you are interested in accessing any of their resources. I am also currently developing a resources page for our website, so there will be categories of resources broken down by gender equity, racial equity, education, and composition. So when you go on the website and you click on the resources tab that will be there, you can find resources for various topics. So that will hopefully be going up at some point this week, and by next week's episode, that will be up and live on our website. I will be posting about it on social media, so please make sure you are following our Instagram, Twitter, and now our Facebook page. Please DM me or email me at musicherstorypod at gmail.com if you are interested in being a guest. I would love to have you. I'm Erica Isagirre, originally from Austin, Texas, born and raised, and I play trumpet. Awesome. Okay, so what got you started in music? What made you choose the trumpet? When I was going into middle school, I needed to pick an elective, and I have two older sisters, and they had both done choir, and being the youngest, I really wanted to be different. I wanted to do something different. So I told my parents, I want to be in band. You know, I grew up in a middle, lower middle class family, so finances were kind of tight. But my parents are always super supportive, so they found a way. They're like, okay, well, we'll make it happen. Well, you'll do music. So I signed up to try instruments, and I remember this very clearly. They put a flute, a clarinet, a trumpet, and a trombone in front of me, and I had to pick one. And I remember what I thought. I, I looked at the flute, and I was like, oh, that little thing, I don't know. It's not, it's not for me. <laughs> I looked at the clarinet. I'm like, oh, that thing squeaks. Uh, I don't want a squeaky thing. And then I look at the trombone. And I'm like, oh, that's so big. I don't, I don't think I want to carry that around. So, so I went with the trumpet. So it wasn't anything like moving. It was just like, I'm very practical. And I was like, this is, this is the right size. <laughs> and it doesn't squeak. So I'm going to do trumpet. So for the first year, I just kind of did it for funsies. And uh my second year, I was in, in the jazz band, and my teacher at the time, Sarah Allen, she was all, uh, she's also a, a good trumpet, really good trumpet player, and she took the band to see Maynard Ferguson and the Big Bop Nouveau in concert, live in concert. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what to expect. So here I am, 12 years old, sitting in the fifth row listening to Maynard Ferguson, and I remember the moment when the trumpet section started walking around the auditorium during the shout chorus of Chameleon, that's, that's when I said, oh, yeah, this is it. 
this is what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> so yeah. you really started because of an inspiration from jazz music then that kind of got you going on the trumpet. Yeah, but oddly enough, all of my, I mean, I've studied jazz, but all of my preparation has been classically oriented. So what were your experiences like? You said you're from Austin, Texas. So what mm -hmm. were your experiences like growing up being a female trumpet player, going through middle school and high school band and those things? Were they mainly positive, negative, kind of a grab bag of situations? How would you describe that? Sure, that's a, that's a great question. As I mentioned Sarah Allen before, she was kind of a big role model for me. She has dark hair you know, dark eyes and I'm Mexican, so I have those features, you know? And so I saw her and I saw that she was a trumpet student, a trumpet player, and she would give me like free little lessons, you know, uh, after school or before school if I got there early. And so for me, that was like, okay, well, like I never thought about it. I was like, okay, well, she's doing it. I'm gonna do it, you know? Mm -hmm. And actually uh, when it came time for me to like buy a step up or professional trumpet, she actually paid for half of it for me. And so, wow. uh, yeah, we actually still stay in touch. She's, she's still a mentor. She's now a professor at SMU in, in Texas. So I had some positive experiences like that where I had an early positive role model. I didn't really think about the fact that my gender and being a trumpet player made me different until I started high school when my band director pulled me into his office, I must have been like after class or something, I don't know. And he said, because I was a freshman and I was uh, in the wind ensemble, the top band, a section full of boys. And he said, if any of the boys ever bother you, you let me know. So up until then, I had never thought that I was different. <laughs> I was just, yeah. you know, a trumpet player. I, there was nothing different. I was just doing the thing. But that moment was like where I was like, oh, I guess being a woman and playing trumpet is a little different. <laughs> yeah. And I did, I did have, I'm, I'm pretty short, I'm 5'3", so I did have some boys hide my binders and my shoes in some of the top cubbies where I couldn't see them or reach them. Classic. <laughs> Another thing that I just remembered right now that happened when I was in high school, I think I was a senior and I was in like, whatever, the state orchestra or some region orchestra or something and it's three trumpet players I won't name them I'm, I'm friends with all of them <laughs> but one of one of them turns to me and he goes I didn't know girls could play trumpet <laughs> I said yes we can and I sat down and I played my part so those were kind of early early memories of noticing that I was different just because I was a girl playing trumpet yeah, and I don't want to like assume anything, but I feel like having your first teacher be such a major influence on you and in, in being a female trumpet player herself, I feel like that may have had to contribute to the level of comfort that you felt in the way you identify from a young age. A hundred percent. And I'll probably talk more about this later, but in terms of creating more diversity, you know, in like the university level and in the professional level, I think it starts at that early stage where, you know, people like ourselves, women, and especially BIPOC or uh, people of other genders really need to be out there and teaching because that is the way to inspire those younger students to 
And maybe they don't realize it. Maybe they don't realize that they're being inspired. I certainly didn't. But I, yeah. I think that visibility makes it kind of normalizes it for them. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Representation is so important for them yes. to see themselves reflected in the profession. So you moved on to study trumpet performance at yes. University of Texas at Austin for your undergrad. Mm -hmm. Yes. So how were, was that experience being there for you? Because I know you're from Austin, so you didn't have to go too far from home. But how were those experiences for you in your undergrad? It was awesome. I love UT. Hook em horns. My teacher, <laughs> was, <laughs> my teacher was Ray Sasaki. He recently retired, but he is just such a force of positivity and musicality that you had to try to not fit into that, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was awesome. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily remember any moments where I felt less than for being a woman. I know that Ray, at some point in a lesson early on, kind of did the, something that my high school teacher did, where he said, if anyone ever bothers you, let me know. But no one ever bothered me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Everyone was great. Everyone was just trying to learn and trying to get better, trying to be like Ray you know, trying to be nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you went to Baylor for your master's degree. Yes. How was Baylor for you? Baylor was very, it was very different from UT because UT is so huge. And when I started at UT, I felt like I was a small fish in a huge pond, you know, and I was definitely the underdog there. So I worked my ass off. And I, obviously when I got to Baylor, I also worked my butt off too. But it was very different, and WIF Run has such a an environment there, also of positivity and of camaraderie, because we have twice weekly required practice sessions with the whole studio, and the studio there is relatively small, maxing out about 15 or 16. And honestly, both studios, both teachers, kind of try to maintain a decent balance between genders. Mm -hmm. There was always a handful of women in the studio which was nice. And then you pursued your DMA at Eastman. So what, what made you choose Eastman for your DMA? What made you choose to pursue a DMA in the first place? Sure. I'm, I'm very ambitious. <laughs> and I kind of set my mind going to big schools and studying with great teachers. And, mm -hmm. and I work, my, work as hard as I can till I achieve it. So after Baylor, I took a year off and I I did private teaching and I, I also did some math tutoring. I love math. <laughs> and, I can't say I agree with you on the math thing, but <laughs> <laughs> really, it's so fun. <laughs> so, and then, you know, I was a year off and I had done some thinking and I said, okay, I'm only going to apply to study with teachers that I really want to study with, you know? So I applied at three schools, Colburn to study with Jim Welt, McGill to study with Palmer Kello. Mm -hmm. and Eastman to study with Jim Thompson because mm -hmm. those are the teachers that I had in my mind singled out these will these people will get me where I want to be yeah and if I my thought was if I don't get into any of them okay I'll try again next year you know because I didn't want to settle there's yeah. no point in settling right yeah uh you have one life to live is, is what I like to think so I got into Eastman and I it was hard to accept it I did get in on scholarship which is amazing but Eastman's still pretty pricey, you know. But, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I actually um, went and had, I think, coffee with Ray. In a, and his wife, Jean Sasaki, had, had been to Eastman. 
for undergrad or master's, I can't remember. And he said, you would be stupid not to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I thought, if Ray is telling me that, there's something here. So I, I went to Eastman, and I, no regrets. It was, it was challenging, to say the least, as you know. But it was the greatest decision I ever made. Yeah, that's awesome. And I met my partner there, so it's a win-win. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So she was studying at Eastman as well? Yeah, she came in a year after me to do her master's in bass trombone. So uh, we have <gasps> a brass so power cool. couple here. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's so great. So yeah. when you were studying, obviously, so you have three degrees. Very impressive. Yes. Here we go. Thank you. So <laughs> you're welcome. You earned it. So during that time that you were studying, so obviously you spent a lot of years at the collegiate level. Have you yeah. ever felt like you were discriminated against or treated differently because of your gender or your sexuality? Mm. Well, Thompson, Professor Thompson from Eastman is extremely supportive in all regards of, mm-hmm. of being a woman in the brass field, of being gay in the music field. So I felt extremely supported by him and I felt like there was, I still feel this way through my my connection with him. Like I feel like there's no barrier there because of that for me. I did have an experience at Eastman. I don't even remember the teacher's name. (laughs) That's, but it it did impact me. We were at a, it was a a guest artist masterclass and I, I'm a mega nerd. I, if I can play in a masterclass, I will play in a masterclass. I will volunteer for every masterclass possible because I want to learn as much as possible, you know? Yeah. And so I'm like super excited. I've been working on Solace by Stanley Friedman for X amount of time by this point. Yes. And I've performed, yes, I love that piece. And I had performed it like in studio a couple of times at a competition, in a recital. Like I have performed this piece. I feel good about it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So I get up and I think I played the first movement and he kind of stopped me and I was like, okay, well that's different. You know, normally they let you get to like two movements maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's kind of like blasting, like getting me to try to play louder, but like blasting it in my ear. And I already have like tinnitus, which is mild hearing loss. Yeah. <laughs> so this was not a positive experience already. And then, so I'm like going, we're going back and forth. He's coaching me. And at some point he says, the reason you can't play this piece well is because you're not a man. <laughs> Now, mind you, this is an international professor, and this masterclass is being videotaped by a, I don't know, professional, you know, whatever, camerographer, whatever you call them. And it's for, like, Eastman connecting with other universities abroad. Wow. So I I felt like I couldn't react, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I felt like I couldn't react and I, I was looking at, you know, I like made, I think I made eye contact with several people in the studio and we were all just kind of shocked and I knew my time was almost over with this uh, (laughs) a-hole. So uh, I just, I just stood there and I, I, to this day I regret not saying anything, but I knew I, I felt like I couldn't, you know? Yeah. And so, okay, I left as soon as. And the master class wasn't over, but I left. I packed up after my turn was over, and I reached out to my partner. Well, she wasn't my partner at the time. We were just best friends. 
and she had just gotten out of her studio class and I just like vented but the day after I had my lesson with my teacher was Thompson and it was like an afternoon lesson and I had heard that a lot of people from my studio had gone to him and relayed the story so a lot of people from the studio Stole stood up for me yeah yeah we didn't have a deep conversation I knew that Thompson had my back I knew he he was supporting me but that was mm -hmm. that was an interesting moment <laughs> yeah no kidding yeah. and I feel like I, some people can say like oh well it was an old guy he just said it because he wasn't thinking blah 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 they're used to this culture and they make up excuses for people like this but right I think in that situation you almost took advantage of the fact that it was being filmed and that you had all this pressure on you so you didn't, right. you didn't really say anything and I've been in situations like that before where you're playing in front of people and or an audience of some sort and then somebody makes a comment like that and then you're sitting there like if I say something I may come across as rude or disrespectful in some way or you're just shocked right the are there going to be repercussions you know yeah and so you don't know what to say in the moment and then you kick yourself later like oh I should have said <laughs> something because you know, we, we try to be, like, I identify myself as being a feminist, and I try to, you know, be an ally for others, and I, if I would have saw that happening to somebody else, I probably would have intervened, mm -hmm. but when it happens to me, sometimes I feel like, oh, crap, in the moment, I get shocked, and I don't know what to do, and then I end up regretting it later, but, I mean, it's hard in those situations, especially when, that person is supposed to be this sort of authoritative figure in that moment. They're supposed to be the expert that you're supposed to be listening to. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, Amber and I talk about this all the time, you know, especially after it happens and you're just like, oh, you know, what I, I like in your head, you think like five different things that you could say, mm -hmm. but you don't say anything, right? <laughs> so we try to come up with like, okay, if someone calls you sweetie, okay, what are you going to say back, <laughs> you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think it's important to have things, I guess, little quibs that you can pull out, even if it's just something that you practice in conversation with a friend. I saw this one post online, and they were talking about that sort of thing. Like if someone makes a reference or a joke or a comment or something like that, that you perceive as being offensive because it is face value, asking the person, what do you mean by that? Right. And just asking the question and putting it on them because the vast majority of the time, if they know that they're, if they're trying to get a dig or they're trying to be offensive in some way, they won't have an answer to that. Right. And they'll like immediately shut down. So I saw that online and I was like, hmm, I'm going to try that next time. <laughs> That's definitely very, like a very good way of doing it. You're, you're not putting the pressure on yourself. You're putting the pressure on them, right? Yeah. It's not your responsibility exactly. to educate them. I mean, you are kind of by asking them, but it's not your responsibility to feel that pressure. Yeah, because I had a colleague that I worked with this past year that kept calling me like sunshine and oh sweetheart and all these things. And like, not even in just in conversation, but to get my attention, he would call <laughs> me that. And so I just started ignoring him. Right. So he'd be like, hey, sunshine, hey, sweetheart, to like get my attention. And I would just walk away. And then he would finally say my name. He'd be like, hey, Cassidy. And I'd turn and be like, oh, you were talking to me? <laughs> That's great. Like, because I didn't, you know, it's, it's hard because he was in a more quote unquote authoritative position than I was in because I was new 
and everything. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I couldn't say anything back to him out of, you know, the consequences that could have happened or some sort of repercussion that I was afraid of. So I just started ignoring him until he actually used my name. Mm-hmm. Because that was the only defense mechanism I could think of using <laughs> in the moment. Obviously, you caught his attention, right? Because then he referred to your name. So yeah. That, it's I think like, that's it's like training a puppy. <laughs> Honestly, that's what I felt like. I was like, all right, I'm just not going to respond until he says my name. <laughs> it was crazy. You should carry yeah. around a clicker, you know? I know. <laughs> Click. Good job. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> that's kind of what it felt like, though. It's yeah, kind of crazy because people don't think about the language that they use in situations like that, or they are trying to be hurtful. Mm-hmm. But it's so crazy to me that that person came into a collegiate situation where not all of the students at Eastman that are trumpet players are men. I mean, right. in the studio right now, a lot we have a pretty substantial amount of women in the studio. So the fact that he just did that to you and he did it also mm-hmm. in front of other female trumpet players is ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty special. I don't think he's invited back. <laughs> so. Probably not. No. Yeah. Can't imagine. Yeah. And I was in an earlier episode that I had released. One of my friends was in a saxophone quartet, and she went to a competition, and the quartet ended up winning. And the only comment one of the adjudicators had for the quartet is he walked up to her and said, next time, don't wear a dress. Your story kind of made me think of that because his feedback wasn't necessarily – about your playing, it was, oh, you can't play this because you're not a man. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, it's not it's not actual constructive musical feedback. It's just telling you, oh, you can't do this because of your gender. Yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs> Ridiculous. I have something, I have something similar actually happened to me this year. I was going to join an, I was auditioning for an all-women band, and that already is pretty awesome, right? Mm-hmm the head of the band I, I considered a role model. So I was super stoked that she was considering me for an audition, you know? Mm-hmm. So I go into the audition. They wear dresses, like that's their attire for their band. But I thought, okay, well, if they like my playing, you know, I don't wear dresses. So I thought if they like my playing, maybe, you know, they'll be fine with me wearing pants. Yeah. So the audition went great, right? And then her manager slash editor slash guitar player slash fiance slash blah 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 gets involved and we start talking about attire and I say well I I don't wear dresses and she's like oh well I think we can I think we can find some pants for you and I say oh I don't mind buying my own like pants you know yeah I don't mind paying shelling out for that it sounds cool yeah and he's like no if you're not gonna wear a dress you can't play in this band because in this band, we, they wear dresses. And I say, well, I'm going to have to think about this. And I just left. She walked me out and she was trying to like, she knew that I was no longer into it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that was hard for me on many levels because I was very excited to be a part of this group. So I got crushed on many levels. But it was an important moment for me because, as you said, growing up in Texas, Growing up in a Mexican household, as a woman, you're supposed to act a certain way. You're uh-huh. supposed to dress a certain way. You're supposed to, I mean, my, fa- my mom's pretty open-minded, but I still felt those constructs. And it yeah. wasn't really until I left Texas and moved to New York 
upstate New York of all things, <laughs> that I started dressing the way I wanted to and being who I wanted to. So for someone in Boston, which is pretty liberal, to tell yeah. me that I can't wear pants. <laughs> wow. Was very off-putting. Yeah, right? And I feel like I understand the argument of, hey, we want everybody to look the same, so nobody's, you know, sticking out visually. Mm -hmm. But the the primary purpose of a musical ensemble is for people to listen. Right. Right? So, and your the way you dress has no ability in how you're playing your instrument. So, honestly, that argument is just goes out the window for me because I'm like, that, that shouldn't matter, right? 100%. And even if you look at professional symphony orchestras, the women wear all black, but they're not required to all wear dresses. Mm -hmm. So you can't even use that argument that that's the way all professional ensembles work because they don't. And yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a teacher. I teach middle school and high school band and there, you know, has been this tradition of a required uniform and those sorts of things. And when I was in high school band, I was required to wear a dress yep. and the thing was like super flowy at the bottom and it made mute changes a bitch. It was terrible because I could yeah. not put the mute in between my legs and my lap. I couldn't hold it underneath my knee. It would just fall on the floor. And it's like, it's, this isn't even practical at this point. And I was never a woman who liked to wear dresses when I played. I rarely do it at all. I always wore pants. And so it drove me nuts in high school. So I don't make any of my kids wear like a specific required uniform. I just tell them all black professional. Thanks. That's what it should be. A hundred percent. And I think it's great that you do that. You know, I play in a, in a professional orchestra regularly and they always post like the dress code and they have men, blah, 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 black pants, black jacket, white shirt, whatever, you know, yeah. and then they have the women all black with a hint of whatever. Like they always have a color depending on the concert. Oh, cool. And honestly, I kind of mix it together. So I'll yeah. wear like an all black suit, black shirt, but then I'm going to put on like my red tie, you know? Yeah. <laughs> because why not? Like, you're not, I'm not breaking the rules. No. You know? Yeah. Um, and I get compliments on my ties all the time when I go to play with them. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, because that, it shouldn't matter. Especially right. if you're a trumpet player. I mean, we're sitting in the back row. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just remember in the way that I had, was assigned to dress, it was just so funny because I was always like one of the only females, if not the only female in the back row. And then there'd just be like, tux, 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 black dress, tux, 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 tux. <laughs> so I was like, the argument of me not sticking out like a sore thumb is invalid anyway, because I'm still going to stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> right. Seriously. This doesn't matter. It doesn't. So, so you got your doctorate from Eastman. Yes, what are you doing now career-wise? So I moved to Boston to freelance. Mm -hmm. And I've only been out here for a year, but I've been picking up some good work. I'm in the sublist for one of the, the better orchestras out here. Mm -hmm. And I also teach for Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra. I teach oh, several great. of their classes. Yeah. And I'm actually involved with their program that primarily focuses on minority students. So honestly, I'm blessed right now with like three young female trombonists and and two trumpet players and I think it's the coolest thing that I am their teacher you know I get to yeah. try to inspire them and move them yeah Even if they don't become professionals just to have a good time yeah and you're carrying on that legacy that your first teacher instilled in you exactly 
to others. That's great. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you do there, what the organization is like? Sure. So BYSO has a lot of programs, a lot of different orchestras. I can't even pretend to understand everything that they do. <laughs> but this program is called ICP. It's, uh, it's definitely for minorities. And all of the students are BIPOC, as are some of the faculty, which I think is phenomenal. So essentially what we do is we start students young. So for brass students, I think they can start at the age of eight or nine. Mm-hmm. I have a 10-year-old trumpet student right now, and he's really gung-ho about trumpet. That's awesome. Um, yeah. We, we get them started young, and we get them to a certain level where after two or three years, they are able to join into the other ensembles of the BYSO. Mm, okay. Um, which is awesome, right? Because I actually played in a production of Aida with one of the higher, two of the higher ensembles for BI- BYSO. Mm-hmm. And just to see the diversity in gender and in races, I guess, is awesome. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's what you want to see in a professional orchestra. Yeah. So the fact that we're doing that, and, and I feel so honored to be at the very root of it, you know, I'm getting them, like, like I said, I have, my students range from age 10 to 13 right now, and they're all in the first or second year of playing, and for the most part, they're pretty excited about it. Some of them are just like, oh, my mom made me come to this class, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so cool that I'm, I'm there at the, where it begins, where it starts, you know? Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. I talked about in an earlier episode, one of my friends who is a violist and he has a mixed race and he was talking about how it's really important that communities try to have programs like this that are supporting musicians of color from a young age and having some sort of outreach program that gets them in the door and into I don't even want to say classical music but learning an instrument like the trumpet or like the violin or what have you and really encourage them from the beginning to participate to get latched in and to get to be a part of the community because historically that community has had so many barriers and these gates against people of color for so long that we need to kind of change the culture and change how we approach starting kids on instruments and getting them into those ensembles. A hundred percent. And I feel like also it has to do a lot with money. You know, when I was a kid, at least in Texas, there weren't these kinds of programs and and I kind of mentioned that earlier there was financial issues so I mm-hmm. it has affected me if I think I, I try not to think about these things because I'm just like I'm gonna practice trumpet you know yeah <laughs> it has affected me I, I my parents couldn't afford lessons for me until until I started high school so that's three years yeah and yes Miss Allen was giving me a lesson here and there which was I'm very grateful for but I developed a lot of bad habits you know mm-hmm. So then in high school, I was studying with Bernie Nero, who was at the time principal of the Austin Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And I still keep in touch with him from time to time. He's super supportive of me and my career. But there came a summer when my parents couldn't afford it for that summer. You know, funds were tight, what have you. So at that point, my dad and Bernie had become pretty good friends. They would sometimes sit and drink coffee together. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad is a, he's a, painter he paints buildings yeah and Bernie wanted to renovate his studio so Bernie comes to us and I just told him sadly I can't do lessons this summer and he's like oh yes you can 
And he said, I'll give you free lessons if your dad will renovate my studio. And that's how I got lessons that summer. But yeah. you know, if it wasn't for something like that, I'm sure I would have been fine that summer, but I had that support system financially at least. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of programs like this ICP for BYSO, El Sistema, which I've worked for before. And I know Sphinx has some stuff for younger people too. Anything like that, that is really becoming popular nowadays, that's what's going to make the difference because exactly no longer will people, you know, have those financial struggles that keep yeah. them from achieving their dreams, you know? Yeah. And I think if a community has a youth orchestra, they can very easily do what Boston's doing. hundred percent. I know I've been involved with some community music programs out in Cleveland, Ohio, and they had scholarships available for kids that are of a socioeconomically more disadvantaged environment. So mm -hmm. the kids were either coming at a very low rate or they were coming for free and they still got the lessons, they still got the ensemble experience. So there are ways that we can provide funding and support for those students. It just has to be the organization saying, hey, we're going to make this a priority. Yes, exactly. So you mentioned Sphinx. Yes. And you told me before that you have worked with Sphinx before. So can you describe what you've done with Sphinx and maybe elaborate a little bit on what the organization is about for some people who may not know what Sphinx is? Sure. Honestly, I'm more of a benefactor. I'm more benefiting from what Sphinx does than yeah. anything else. I think what they do is great. So they provide support for BIPOC musicians who are trying to get into a career in orchestra. Mm -hmm. I don't know much about their programs for younger students. I've been seeing some stuff. But what they've done for me is before the pandemic, they paid for me to go take an audition. So yeah. they covered my flight fees. They covered my hotel fees. They covered my transportation fees while I was over there. And they gave, even gave me a per diem so I can go eat bratwursts. <laughs> you awesome. know? And that just really took the pressure off of, okay, I want to take this audition, but if I take it, I have to pay my bills late, you know? And yeah. it's the help of Sphinx, and this specific program is called the NAAS, National uh, Association for Audition. It really just took that stress away and let me focus on my playing and my studying, you know? So that was one thing that, that I benefited from them. The thing that I'm doing right now is the orchestral audition intensive. It's been going on for six weeks and we've had countless masterclasses with just some of the greatest musicians of color in orchestras. And I've had three lessons that each changed my life. You know, I had a lesson with Billy Hunter and I've met Billy before. He's a great mentor. And I had a lesson with Weston Sprott from The Met and he has a lot to say about practicing, which is amazing. And I had a lesson with Alberto Suarez, who's on the West Coast. All amazing, amazing musicians. And the great thing about Sphinx and Nas is that they want to see the change that we're talking about. They want yeah. to see more people of color in the orchestra. They want the orchestra setting to really represent the melting pot that is America, you know? Mm -hmm. So... It's amazing. I could talk about it all day. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's there's a lot of layers to those programs and trying to rope 
more diverse pool of kids in to be a part of that. And we talked about the financial reasons. And I think it also stems from K-12 education and mm-hmm. having programs showing that representation, showing these kids, hey, this person looks like you and is successful on an instrument, which means you can be too. And I think that's what's really cool about these programs is that they're doing that outreach. And I think we as professional musicians in the field can also be a part of that as well and can reach out to school programs and show their representation and those sorts of things. And I'm always trying to do that with my students and show them, hey, this person looks like you and they play this instrument. And I don't directly say that. I kind of subtly (laughs) feed it to my kids, but I will purposely try to find ensembles that have a more diverse pool of people because, you know, my private teacher growing up, I studied with a man privately all the way through, Mm -hmm. but he made it a point to show me female trumpet players all the time. If he sent me a recording, nine times out of 10, it was a female trumpet player playing. And he never came out and directly said, oh, I'm doing this because this is how you identify. He didn't ever said that, but he just subtly fed it to me. And then I never saw me playing my instrument growing up. I knew I was outnumbered and I knew I was a minority because of my gender, but Mm -hmm. I never saw that as, as big of an obstacle as I may have if I never saw that kind of representation. 100%. I think that's my message to everyone, anyone listening to this. If you think to yourself, there's not enough people of color in the orchestra, and we know that's a problem, then you have to be the person that changes that, right? Like, go out and find students to teach, uh, Mm -hmm. or go to a school, like you're saying, and do an outreach with an ensemble comprised of people of color, you know, like that's what we need to do. Make it visible. Maybe you're not pointing it out to them, but they are seeing it. Kids are smart. They're going to notice things, you know? Oh yeah. So honestly, that's like one of my biggest things. Like I don't know of any like Mexican female soloist, trumpet soloists, let alone a gay one. So yeah, I, that's what I want to portray myself as. I'm trying to right now put together a recital of all Mexican music. And wow, that's awesome. COVID lets me, I'm, I want to take it on the road, you know? Yeah. Actually, this is something that I wanted to bring up. It's also, diversity also has to do with the music that we're displaying, right? Mm-hmm. So orchestras are now trying to do more music of female composers and composers of color. And I think that's phenomenal but I think it also has to do with music from other countries. So when I was at Eastman doing my doctorate, I did a lecture recital on the music of Mexico. I mean, not all of the music of Mexico, like a very specific genre, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no one else was doing that. There was lecture recitals on Bach, cello suites. There was lecture recitals on like dance form and music, all great topics, all great lectures. But I pride myself in having done one in Me- on Mexican music. Yeah. And so I had a, a room full of my peers and, and teachers from the school who I don't think had ever really thought about Mexican music. And I taught them how to, how to dance the huapango. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was a great moment. My parents were in the audience. I got my parents to dance, which was beautiful. That's um, amazing. But I think that is also part of creating diversity, is bringing attention to music that's not normally looked at. Yeah, I completely agree. And a lot of people try to 
use the excuse that, oh, there's just not as much music being written in a classical way, blah, 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 from all these other countries. And there, there is, there's a lot of it. It's just not being played. So you have right. to do the research, go to composerdiversity.com. Yes. <laughs> it's an amazing database. I think using those resources and finding that diversity there and taking it upon yourself and doing your own research is super important. What we're doing compositionally is very important and I applaud you for doing that and I think that's really great because not only were you supporting the diversity in the music that you were playing for your recital but you also were representing something personal and your own heritage I think is so cool. Yeah this is something that I I gathered from a mentor of mine John Wallace. If you don't know of him check him out he's a trumpet virtuoso from Scotland and a composer he writes great music for for trumpet. I met him at Chosen Bell, and he said to me, you have to find your unique selling point, your USP, unique yeah. selling point. And it just, you have to think about that. What is unique about you, you know? And maybe, maybe it's a cop-out for me to say, well, I'm a Mexican trumpet player, and there's not a lot of us in the classic field. Mm-hmm. But also, it does make me unique. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so I'm yeah. going to run with it. <laughs> Yeah, and there are thousands of trauma players who can play the Hindemith or the Haydn or the Hummel, the HHH. They can do all those things, but there is one you, and I think that's important that he said that because we need to all find what makes us unique and what we can do and what we can bring to the table because the world is way too competitive with everybody doing the same thing all the time that we need to find that, that selling point. I completely agree. 100%. My final question for you is imagine someone who's just like you but they're like 10 years old so Mm -hmm. younger your younger self Mm -hmm. and if you could give your younger self any piece of advice before they go to college for music before they pursue a professional career before they're doing all the things that you're doing what would you tell them oh my goodness no i hit you with a deep question at the end (laughs) (laughs) I would say, uh, be your most sincere self. So be true to yourself, you know? I think a lot of times we try to fit, and this can be taken in terms of society, in terms of musicality, but we try to fit into what we think people want to see from us. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be a detriment in so many ways, you know? Like, let's say you're preparing, I don't know, you mentioned Hindemith, right? You're preparing the Hindemith, and you've heard from five different teachers. You gotta sound like this, you gotta sound like this, you gotta sound like this, and you gotta sound like this, right? Which, where in that do you find yourself? Mm. Right? How are you gonna play the Hindemith that is true to you? And that's just like me wow. relating that to, to music, but yeah, just be your truest self. Yeah, my, my teacher in my undergrad, Jack Suddy, woohoo, shout out to Jack. <laughs> He always used to talk about finding your voice and finding your song and whatever you're working on because you can listen to other people play and be inspired by what they're doing and try to emulate some of the things that they're doing. But at the end of the day, your sound is your sound. Right. Finding your authentic self, I think, is so important, especially young kids who just try to copy and paste what the professionals are doing. And they're not, you know, they're having a struggle trying to find where is my voice and where is my place. And I think what you said was so important. That was so great. Thanks.
Yeah. All right, Erica, <laughs> thank you so much for being on and talking with us. And I think you had some really great points to make about diversity. And everyone, if you are a person of color, you should be checking out the Sphinx organization because they are doing great things to help support people taking auditions and all sorts of educational programs. And if you're someone who is looking to expand your repertoire and find more diverse music, please go to composerdiversity.com because it is a great resource. It's a giant database. You can search for whatever you want. You can search for uh, Mexican composers. You can search for uh, Black composers, Asian, whatever you want. And you can identify by LGBTQ composers. You can search by specific cities if you want someone local. So it's a great database to use. So I recommend everybody use that. But yeah, Erica, I want to thank you for being on and talking with us today. It was great to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a, a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please make sure you are doing all the things I talked about before the beginning of this episode today. Also, if you are a person that is struggling to diversify your repertoire or you are looking for more resources, please feel free to reach out to me. I've done a lot of research on this topic and I have collected a bunch of different online resources and things that I feel like would be useful to a lot of people and I'm slowly going to release those on the website, but if that's something that you're personally interested in, you need help looking for a particular instrument or a different topic, please let me know. Uh, Reach out to me, email me. And I will try to help you as best as I can. I also am friends with a lot of people who are knowledgeable on this topic in many different areas. And I'm slowly going to have these people on the show as well. But if you need something more immediate, like you're planning for a concert or a recital or something like that, just please reach out to me. Um, I'd love to help you and make sure that our world is becoming increasingly more diverse in our music profession because that's what the mission of this podcast is all about. So feel free to reach out and I'd, I'd love to help you. So thanks for listening. Please keep supporting the podcast and sharing it. I'm trying to build a greater and greater audience. Of course, I say this every episode, but I'm trying to reach as many people as possible with this and get as many people to tell their stories because I know there are a lot of people struggling right now and these are not great times. And I have been seeing some issues that are even happening with my own institution. So I want to make sure that even those people feel that sense of support and comfort coming from me, being someone that has been posting so publicly about these issues, just know people that ESM right now, you have my support, you have my love, and I'm here for you. So please feel free to reach out to me if you are experiencing any sort of issues or you just need some support or someone to talk to. I'm always here for all of you. So thank you. I love you all. Please be safe and have a good week. See you next week.